Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Prison populations have boomed across Latin America over the past two decades. While the region is violent, most prisoners are poor people locked up for low-level crimes such as theft. Conditions are appalling, and they're getting worse. And Chinese films tend to be blockbusters, often with patriotic themes. But one recent release told the story of a poor rural couple's struggles. It became a surprise hit, which seems to have made authorities nervous. But first... Italy is on course to have elected its most right-wing government since the Second World War. Exit polls have given Georgia Maloney's Brothers of Italy and their allies a share of the vote that would ensure them comfortable majorities in both houses of parliament. Unire questo popolo, di esaltare quello che lo unisce piuttosto che quello che lo divide. Claiming victory, Ms. Maloney, whose party traces its origins back to neo-fascism, said a coalition led by her would look to govern for all Italians. Yesterday's vote was a snap election, called by the current prime minister, Mario Draghi, eight months ahead of schedule. Mr. Draghi's broad national unity government had collapsed in July. Like the rest of Europe, Italians are experiencing rising inflation, high energy prices, and the prospect of a cold winter. But Italy is the third largest economy in the European Union, meaning this election result, and the swell of support for Ms. Maloney and the Italian right, has consequences well beyond its borders. Giorgia Meloni is now poised to become Italy's first woman prime minister. John Hooper is The Economist's Italy correspondent. She stands for a variety of ideas very much associated with the nativist right, the alt-right, if you like. She is, for example, against what she calls the LGBT lobby against gay adoption. She is a, a very charismatic politician, effective on the hustings, but with a message that's always more reassuring than alarming and which tries to put across often pretty radical ideas in a way that makes them seem sensible and 
rational. And this kind of more downbeat approach has definitely appealed to the Italian electorate. And why do you think she and her party garnered such strong support? Tell us about the state of Italy right now. I think there are two reasons. One of them was a feeling that they just tried everything else. If you look back at the last few years, what you see is a country which has tried the conventional center-left, then lurched towards populism, embracing the maverick five-star movement and the Northern League, and now really has found itself in a position where everything else has not worked. I think the other reason why she has been so successful is that she has remained consistent. She has opposed Mario Draghi's widely respected government, and that tactic has paid off handsomely, not least in putting the Northern League into a very, very tight corner. And I think one of the questions arising from this election is whether Matteo Salvini now can survive as its leader. So economically, Italy looks like it's in a pretty risky condition. How will the Maloney government deal with them? Italy in some ways is better placed than some other European countries. Growth was surprisingly strong in the first half of the year. And the outgoing government has said that it's relatively well placed to face the winter. Having said all that, there are two sets of real challenges for whichever government is coming into power. One of them is the cost of living crisis, and that links to how much Italy can add to its already massive debts. This was a bone of contention between Ms. Maloney and Mr. Salvini during the campaign. At the moment, Ms. Maloney is saying that she is all for fiscal prudence and that she does not want to borrow more. Well, good luck with that, because it's very difficult to see how any new government can tackle the cost of living crisis and keep the electorate happy without further debt. The other dimension to things is the very sizable 200 billion euro withdrawal that Italy is planning to make from the EU's post-pandemic recovery fund. And that's something that's going to need a huge amount of micromanagement by any new government. And there's a big doubt about whether this right-wing administration will have the sheer capacity and talent to handle such a complex operation. And beyond economic issues, what does her election mean for Italy when it comes to abortion, gay rights, immigration, those sorts of social issues? I think the first thing to say is that she may have so much on her plate that she will be reluctant to start any kind of a culture war in Italy. But then you look at what you might call the point of application. How will, for example, the police react to having this very right-wing government in power? Right now, I would not want to be either gay or black in this country, because I think that the mood is going to change as a result of this election. What does her election mean for Europe? It certainly means that there is a potential shift in the balance 
between the conventional mainstream parties and those of the new populist alt-right. It is noticeable that the first congratulations that poured into Ms. Meloni came from Viktor Orban's advisor in Hungary, from the hard-right Vox party in Spain, and Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National in France. But just how keen Ms. Maloney is going to be to identify those parties remains to be seen. She is treading a very cautious path between, on the one hand, keeping her nationalistic, ultra-conservative supporters happy, and on the other hand, reassuring Europe that she's going to be able to handle the issues that face this new government without sparking a new crisis over Italian debt that could even pitch the European Union into a new euro crisis. And she was very keen to get across that message of reassurance in the brief victory speech that she made this morning. She said that she wanted to unite the nation and to emphasise what brings Italians together rather than what keeps them apart. And John, what does this mean for the war in Ukraine? That indeed is one of the issues that has divided Italians and has divided the right. I think that given the scale of the disaster that has befallen the League, which had been sceptical about sanctions, Ms. Maloney is now in the driving seat on this issue, and so far she has been stolidly pro-Western and pro-NATO. All right, John, thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The United States has the world's highest incarceration rate. More than 2 million people fill its prisons and jails. Those aren't figures to be proud of, but other parts of the world seem determined to catch up. We've seen in the past two decades a huge increase in the number of people in prison in Latin America. Georgia Banjo is a foreign correspondent for The Economist. In Central America, that number has gone up by 76%. In South America, it's increased by 187%. And what we're seeing at the same time as these huge increases is that conditions too are getting a lot worse. What explains the increase in prisoner numbers? So I think it should be pointed out that Latin America has very high crime rates. There's a lot of violence. But what we see, I think, disproportionately in Latin America is that there's a lot of support for policies and measures which incarcerate people in response to that. 
So to give you an example, El Salvador in Central America has been under a state of emergency since March. And the president, President Bukele, has bragged at length about the number of people that he's locked up. About the rations that prisoners have for their food in prisons. And the general conditions under which they are incarcerated. And this seems to have really been very good, in fact, for his approval ratings, which have consistently been around 90%. But all of that comes at a cost. So the staggering thing about El Salvador right now is that around 2% of Salvadorian adults are now behind bars. That is an extraordinary share. Have those sorts of policies had any impact on the violent crime rate in Latin America? Latin America is incredibly violent. It's got a very high murder rate. But the striking thing in Latin America is that, in general, the people who are locked up for crimes are committing robberies and involved in low-level drug dealing. They're not being locked up for murder. So what we see is that, disproportionately, the people who are in prison are poor and they're there for these smaller offences. So, Georgia, these countries are arresting a lot more people. Are they building a lot more prisons? So President Bukele has been in the news recently for announcing plans to build a mega prison to house some of the 40,000 inmates that he's just locked up. But that's really an exception rather than a rule. So generally what we're seeing is that prisons are becoming more and more overcrowded. So in Brazil, prisons are currently operating around about 144% capacity. In Bolivia, that number is around 265%. These are huge amounts of people being locked up. Often these people haven't yet gone to trial. And because of these conditions, because of the sheer numbers, it's often not possible for guards to be present. So the result that we're seeing is that prisons are increasingly run by gangs, which has really terrible consequences. How so? So I was recently in Ecuador. I went there to go and see for myself some of these impacts. And Ecuador is really interesting because it's one of a few countries which has been trying to reduce its prison population in recent years. Unfortunately, having said that, they didn't let me into the prison. So I hung around outside Latacunga, just outside of Quito. But there I met a woman called Berta, whose 74-year-old husband had just been transferred from Latacunga. So Berta told me that her husband had prostate cancer, he has high blood pressure, he also suffers from anxiety. She told me that he's really skinny, he's aged a lot. And despite being really quite poorly, he was forced to sleep on the floor. He was regularly extorted by gang members in the prison. And he was also beaten up a lot. And this really seems to have been a very harrowing experience for him. And she also said that when people go to prison, they always come back worse. There's also people who aren't coming back at all. So since 2020, over 400 people have been killed in prisons 
in Ecuador, in prison riots, in gang killings. And this is a pattern that we're also seeing across the region. In Colombia, in June, 57 people were killed in a prison riot. We're also seeing in Haiti, which is facing an incredible amount of unrest at the moment, that prisoners are starving to death in prisons because they're mainly being forgotten about and not enough food and water is getting to the prisons. Georgia, these stories are horrific. What is the impact of all of this beyond just on the people it's happening to? I think that's a really important question because obviously it's terrible for the people in the prisons, but it also seems to be having a wider impact on society. So the first example of this is in terms of disease. Prisoners routinely describe not receiving medical care, not receiving treatment for conditions like diabetes, HIV. And of course, eventually most of these people will be released back into society. And as well as being bad for them, that's also not going to help overburdened health systems and other people who may um, be infected with these diseases. A really horrific example of this is tuberculosis, which is rife in prisons in Latin America, but also seems to spread to the general population. So we're seeing countries like El Salvador, where rates of tuberculosis have shot up in prisons over the past few years, and we've seen a corresponding increase in general rates in the rest of the country as well. Another huge problem, which I think often spills over from prisons, is violence. We know that there's a lot of violence in prisons at the moment, but we're also seeing in places like Ecuador an increase in violence on the streets as well. One researcher I spoke to told me that he reckons there are around 6 million children who have a parent behind bars. And we know the devastating impact that can have for many children And that is not setting up kids to have the greatest opportunities in life. Georgia, is there any cause for optimism, any reason to think that these trends will will slow or reverse? So I think there's some positive signs. We've seen that a few countries have reduced their prison populations during the pandemic, which can only be a good sign. In Ecuador, we've heard from the head of the prison service that they are pledging to end overcrowding completely by the end of this year and increase the number of prison guards. So all of that would be very good if it happens. But when you speak to families, they are often a lot gloomier about the situation. They talk about corruption, they talk about poor treatment, and they talk about the sheer amount of control that gang members have. Right now, things don't look too great. But if these changes can be introduced, if there is a shift in political will, then that would only be a good thing. All right, Georgia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, John. A man and woman huddled together in bad weather covering themselves with a plastic tarp and looking a little miserable. You were a good man to marry, she says. This kind of subtle but poignant scene is not the normal fare in Chinese cinema, but this new film about rural outcasts has been making waves to the consternation of the country's government. The film is called, in English, Return to Dust. Ted Plathker writes for The Economist from Beijing. It premiered at the Berlin International Film Festival earlier this year. It 
did rounds on a lot of the international film festival circuit and was released in China in July. And then by early September, started roaring up the charts in terms of box office receipts. It became one of the biggest hits. It won the weekend early in September. It made over 110 million renminbi. That's about 16 million US dollars. Very unexpected for this kind of film, which is a gritty portrayal of poor rural life, not the sort of thing that popular Chinese cinema dwells on. And it turned out it made the government a bit uncomfortable. So Ted, tell us a bit more about the plot of this movie. It's a film about very poor people in a poor place. It's set in Gansu province. It's in the far northwest of China. It's actually the province with the lowest per capita GDP. A man and a woman, they're both outcasts. They are beyond the age where they should have gotten married. Their families arrange a marriage between them. Their marriage goes well. They get along beautifully. (laughs) But their lives are still full of all the problems that plague rural China. It's dusty and dry. These people scratch a living out of the earth. They grow grain. They have problems with the local government, which keeps moving them from house to house because the village houses are about to be demolished. There are big businessmen who come driving up in BMWs who are profiting off of the reorganization and not showing a lot of concern for the local folk. They're not paying them the money that's owed them. And this couple find a lot of solace in each other, but the system treats them pretty badly. Ted, you said earlier that this film has made the Chinese government uncomfortable. Why is that? Well, in general, the government and the party want the arts and all media to project what they call positive energy. It's a big campaign that was launched by Xi Jinping, show us the good side of things. And this shows the gritty underbelly. People are very poor. People have hard lives. The system doesn't treat them well. And other films like this get made, but not so many become this popular and set box office records and win box office competition. So it's really struck a chord. And it was only after it became so popular that the government seemed to get nervous. And how did that nervousness manifest itself? What happened? The film was pulled from cinemas with nearly three weeks left to go on its licensed run. Everyone was very surprised. The government didn't say, oh, we're unhappy, we're banning the film. They just pulled from cinemas long before it was scheduled to be pulled while it was still making money. And everyone in the film industry I've spoken to is very clear that it was just the wrong sort of vibe. Especially now China is in the middle of a very big political season. One of the big party meetings is coming up and it's just the wrong time for anything but positive energy. And then the other bit is this weird little postscript that appears. It's a small line of text at the end after all the credits. And there's this one line that says, years later, Mr. Ma, under the help of the government and the warm-hearted support of his fellow villagers, was given a new house and had a very nice new life. Which seems to be, that had to be there or else the film couldn't get approved. So that's why it made the government nervous. Let me ask the converse question. Why have people responded to it so well, do you think? Well, it's beautifully made and it's poignant. It's a tearjerker. It's gut-wrenching. The director, Li Rei-jun, comes from the location where the film is set in rural Gansu province. In fact, the male lead is his uncle, not a professional actor, but a local farmer. And his knowledge came in handy. There are scenes of tilling the land. There are very moving scenes of the male protagonist building a mud thatch-roofed hut. It's a side of rural China that a lot of people, even urban Chinese people, don't see, don't appreciate. And it's a sharp contrast from what mostly appears in Chinese movies. It's either rom-com fluff or wartime heroism, patriotic party history. I overheard the comment of an audience member when I saw the film who said it was really something different. It wasn't bragging about China. It wasn't bragging about how great everything is. It was very realistic. 
that's what sets it apart. I wonder, Ted, if there's a Western film, a film that might be more familiar to a lot of our listeners that you can compare it to. It's sort of Hillbilly Elegy, um, the book that made a lot of people aware that things are tough for people in other parts of the country. In the U.S., we call it flyover country. The rural parts of the country, people have really rough lives. And this animates it so vividly. And you viscerally understand just how hard the day-to-day, hour-to-hour grind is for people. That's what seems to have struck a lot of audiences. All right, Ted, thanks so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.